The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm and slightly windy welcome to Squawk Box this Monday morning with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. So the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson prepares to present his new national lockdown to the Westminster Parliament behind me as the virus resurgence raises fears that one month of restrictions may not be enough. Unless we act, we could see deaths in this country running at several thousand a day, a peak of mortality, alas, bigger than the one we saw in April. Democrat Joe Biden leads President Trump by 10 points in the days ahead of the election, with 6 in 10 voters saying the country is on the wrong track, according to a final poll from NBC and the Wall Street Journal. President Trump raises questions over voting integrity in his final campaign rallies, saying it would be a terrible thing if vote counting extended past Election Day. I think it's a terrible decision by the Supreme Court. A terrible decision. Now, I don't know if that's going to be changed because we're going to go in the night of, as soon as that election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. China's factory activity roars to life in October, expanding at its fastest rate in a decade, sending Asian markets broadly higher. Really good to see you all today and what is going to be a momentous week historically, of course. The US election is the key story of the week, but of course, the rising tide of virus concerns and issues and new restrictions around Europe, uh, these are becoming uh, a clear and present danger for the economic stability uh, of the region as well. This is the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will present his fresh national lockdown to the UK Parliament today. This ahead of a vote on those restrictions on Wednesday. The new restrictions are due to come into effect this Thursday and last, we believe, at least and at least is the key here until December the 2nd. However, there are already warnings as we fear that this could be extended. Well, Mr Johnson said the country has no alternative but to act now. In this country, alas, as across much of Europe, the virus is spreading even faster than the reasonable worst case scenario of our scientific advisors, whose models, as you've just seen, now suggest that unless we act, we could see deaths in this country running at several thousand a day, a peak of mortality, alas, uh, bigger than the one we saw in April. And as you've just seen, even in the southwest, where incidence uh, was so low and still is so low, it's now clear, though, that the current Projections mean that hospitals in the southwest will run out of capacity uh, in just a matter of weeks uh, unless we act. Going back to the full-scale lockdown of March and April, the measures uh, that I've outlined are less prohibitive and less restrictive. But I'm afraid from Thursday, the basic message is the same. Stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. 
well, a lot of contention and uh, dispute about the need for another lockdown within the Prime Minister's own Conservative Party as well. Key backbenchers, including the former Conservative leader Ian Duncan Smith uh, and indeed the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, both vehemently against uh, what they see as draconian action, which will create more damage uh, than helping the economy and helping the underlying situation. But the opposition leader, which is very interesting, the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, he did back the fresh restrictions, but urged the government to fix its test and trace system. We will support the government's message. We will ask people to comply with the lockdown. Um, but the government has to keep its side of the bargain here because if they don't use this time to fix, test, trace and isolate, then I think the 2nd of December will be a review date, not an end date, because for months and months and months, they've promised a world-beating test, trace and isolate system, which is vital. If you don't test, you can't trace. If you don't trace, you can't isolate. It's been busted yeah. for months. Use the time to fix it, because otherwise we're going to be back in this cycle for months and months and months. So let's get into a bit of a conversation about this. Jeff will join us in a few moments' time, but Karen and I will first kick off the conversation. And Karen, it's been a devastating few days for the Prime Minister. Shambolic uh, Saturday evening when the leak of all the new measures went out to both the BBC and indeed the ITV uh, network as well. And the press conference was delayed uh, the best part of an hour on Saturday evening uh, to discuss this as well. But the evidence from the scientific and the medical community was what finally made uh, the UK Prime Minister make what for him was quite an embarrassing U-turn because he had hoped that we, he would get away with a regional strategy, regional lockdowns, a tiered approach as well. Uh, but the evidence on Friday evening presented to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet uh, from the scientific community, including the head of the NHS England, Sir Simon Stevens, uh, Sir Chris Whitty and Professor Patrick Valance as well, was that actually there was an exponential growth in not only cases, but hospitalizations and potentially deaths as well. And the death toll picking up quite aggressively to the highest levels we've seen since May as well. The R rate, the reproductive rate of the virus going up to as high as 1.3 on a national basis, which meant, of course, it was expanding uh, rather than contracting as well. But it was the devastating numbers potentially, Karen, on death toll that really persuaded the Prime Minister that his initial strategy just wasn't going to work with the scientific community presenting figures that could say that actually the death toll, which is 46,000 deaths thereabouts to date, could actually be double that going forward, maybe 85,000 deaths uh, over the winter with as many as 4,000 a day at the peak. And with numbers like that, the Prime Minister perhaps felt he had no choice, Karen. Yeah, there was a huge compare and contrast going on last week between the UK and what's taking place in Europe as both France and Germany announced lockdowns, even though they're lighter measures than the first round. But, you know, just to your first point about uh, the uh, the leaks, there were so many of them, we all assumed we were going into lockdown. So there's a sort of a view out there across the UK, just get on with the announcement. We've all heard about it. So just make the official call now. So finally, we saw it. But it was interesting to see all the consumer behaviours on the weekend last Last minute to scramble to the shops to try and stock up on uh, non-essential products because those shops are closing down. Also, uh, I don't know about uh, your area, but all the pubs around my area were, were so busy. Last chance to go and dine out for about a month as well. The other big question is how long this goes on for because the announcement suggests that it will last until just into December, the early days as we start to kick off some of the festivities around Christmas. But then there was a pushback from Michael Gove over the weekend suggesting, well, maybe it could be longer. So then we start telling up the economic 
hit and what sort of government assistance is required at this point in terms of furlough schemes and particular sectors that are going to be hard hit. You know, this is the really busy time now as we count down to Christmas for the retail sector. So if you don't have an e-commerce division, how much market share, how much revenue are you going to be missing out on at this point? Also for the hard hit hospitality sector, the first blow of lockdown, the second blow is they reopened up but then had curfews put in place at 10 p.m. Now seeing another lockdown, it's going to be a very tough time, you'd have to say, Jeff, for some of these sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's interesting here, Karen, I think, is we can now add another high profile name to the list of those who've actually contracted this infection. I think we've learnt within the last few hours here that the Prince of Wales, the uh, Duke of Cambridge, actually had COVID-19 back in April. But uh, in effectively, the palace sat on that information, the prince himself saying that he didn't want to uh, unduly alarm people. But of course, his father had uh, caught COVID. Now, this um, in itself is not going to make a, a great deal of difference to anybody else's life. But I guess it is just a reminder to all of those out there who perhaps are not practicing safe social distancing or are still fighting the request to wear a face mask when you go into a store. Perhaps it's just a reminder, perhaps, that there are very few people who are immune from catching this uh, awful disease. So I think uh, useful as we think about the consequences of this broader lockdown that you and Steve have been talking about, that we just bear in mind that uh, there are very few people who can escape the clutches of uh, this disease at this point if they don't uh, follow the government and the scientific advice, Karen. Uh, Jeff, I'll just make one more little point and then one kind of anecdote after it as well. Is this isn't a full lockdown. Uh, and I hate to be uh, the bringer of kind of um, dissenting news. But the fact of the matter is I had my optician calling me uh, this weekend saying we are still open. I had my chiropractor sending me an email saying we are still open. Construction sites are open. Manufacturing is still open. There are still takeaways. Alone. The schools, universities, colleges and nurseries are still open as well. There are an awful lot of people. Uh, estate agents are still going to be open. House removals are still so this is a very different lockdown and it is more piecemeal than it appears on the surface as well. So yes, it is devastating for, as you say, Karen, a lot of those retailers and people in the hospitality industry as well. But I, I don't see it as a full lockdown the way we had it first time around at the moment. And I think more draconian moves can come. And I just want to shout out to my local publicans as well, because as you say, Karen, they're, they're doing their absolute best. Well, who can beat what my local friend, Jack, who is the landlord of the farmers did? He said, look, I'm clearing out the pipes. I can't use the harvest. So so he came round in person and brought me round a few pints of my favourite beer yesterday evening. Who can beat that? We are one day away from the US elections. Democratic nominee Joe Biden holds the lead over President Trump. But top polls have tightened as the election approaches. Both candidates held a flurry of events in the final weekend of campaigning. Trump travelled to every corner of the country and will hold over a dozen rallies ahead of the election. The president used this weekend's events to question the integrity of the vote count. I think it's a terrible thing when ballots can be collected after an election. I think it's terrible when we can't know the results of an election the night of the election in a modern-day age of computer. I think it's a terrible thing. And I happen to think it was a terrible decision for our country made by the Supreme Court. I think it was a terrible decision for our country. 
And I think it's a very dangerous decision because you're going to have one or two or three states, depending on how it ends up, where they're tabulating ballots and the rest of the world is waiting to find out. And I think there's great danger to it. And I think a lot of fraud and misuse can take place. I think it's a terrible decision by the Supreme Court, a terrible decision. Now, I don't know if that's going to be changed because we're going to go in the night of, as soon as that election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. Well, let's take you to some of the U.S. market action after a rough trading week last week, the worst one we've had since the start of the, the market sell-off around the pandemic uh, early this year. The, the Dow was uh, shedding uh, close to what uh, was 6.5% of the course of last week. This morning, though, you can see early on we approached a little bit positive uh, in the green for the start of this session, but it has been pointed out to us that we've had the, the worst pre-election week for stocks uh, in the Dow history. So there is a view by some quarters this may weaken Trump's chances. If you take a look at that stock market range, um, data was crossing uh, earlier from the Socionomics Institute that pointed out it uh, does make it more challenging present now in the range of where only 55% of presidents have emerged victorious prior to this, given the strong market action. We've seen about 97%, uh, 87% chance rather. So those chances weakening with some of that stock market action that we saw last week. Jeff. Yeah, Karen, thanks very much indeed for that. Well, let's just pick up on this uh, and talk some more about the lead that that um, uh, Mr. Biden has at this point. Uh, President Trump is trailing uh, Joe Biden by 10 percentage points among registered voters ahead of Tuesday's election. This according to the latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, which found a majority of respondents disapproved of President Trump's handling of the pandemic. The survey also shows Biden's lead over the president narrowing in several key swing states. Let's bring in Mustafa Tamiz, Democratic strategist and former consultant uh, at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, welcome to our program. Can I ask you, um, to what extent uh, are we haunted here by 2016 and the fact that Hillary Clinton also appeared to have a reasonable lead going into polling day? Um, is there a risk here that actually Joe Biden may lose this election? Well, look, anything can happen, especially in, in President Trump's world. Uh, 2016 still has many of us uh, shocked. Uh, but he, here's the facts. Uh, Joe Biden's had a six to 10 point lead since he's announced for the presidency. This is the most durable uh, polling lead than any candidate has had uh, since the mid-90s, and that was uh, Bill Clinton against Bob Dole. So this is a very durable lead. Uh, we've seen record turnout. I'm, I'm in the state of Texas. Uh, 9.4 million Texans have already voted. More Texans have voted in the early voting period than the entire election in 2016. And we've seen that President Trump, although he has a strong, ardent base, has not increased his support. So all of those things indicate that he is in trouble and the way he's campaigning and the, the soundbite you just ran says that he's in trouble because he's already saying the election's rigged uh, and he sounds like he's lost the election even though election day hasn't come yet. Given your background experience, you're clearly frustrated by the policies that President Trump has pursued internationally. And obviously, you're concerned that he's lost, lost American soft power internationally. But does that issue resonate with US voters at all, who seem to be much more inward focused? 
Well, right now, especially foreign policy always plays a role in, in, in presidential politics. But because of COVID, because of where our economy is, there's really a, 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 an internal focus in the United States right now. Uh, you know, President Trump, by all accounts, has mishandled the economy. Uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here now with debt tolls that are above 230,000, uh, over 8 million people infected. We are 24 uh, uh, you know, we're four percent of the world's population, but we have twenty-four percent of the of the debt or global debts. So I think those are the things that are weighing on Americans. Uh, but you know, as, as as when it comes to foreign policy, Americans do understand uh, that our soft power has been lost under President Trump across the world, and that has some grave consequences. So it is a factor. But I think you're right that Americans are focused more on domestic politics, whether it comes to COVID, whether it comes to the economy. Uh, Mustafa, can I just go through what happened differently in 2016 compared to what's going to happen this time around in your view? Because the pollsters got it horrendously wrong. In fact, they got a lot of things wrong, including Brexit on this side of the Atlantic as well. So what gives you any confidence that this time around that there isn't going to be a larger margin for error as we saw in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was called right up until the last moment to be in the lead? I think that, you know, polling is based on past elections. And what we saw in 2016 and what we saw in Brexit, that polling never really took into account uh, a rural vote that was always uh, somewhat missing in, in small percentages. And what we saw in Brexit and what we saw in uh, in President Trump's return, that they had a substantial bump uh, in non-college educated whites, especially in the rural parts. And that never was a factor. It became a factor in 2016. It became a factor in Brexit. What we're seeing now is that that's been accounted for. Uh, there's, you know, because because of 2016, we have accounted for those uh, across all, all most pollsters. The other thing I think that that's a big factor is that you know, people have have seen uh, United States of America under President Trump's leadership, and there's a lot of Republicans that have uh, moved away from him. There's a, a project called the Lincoln Project in the United States that a group of Republicans are running ads against President Trump, and so we've seen, you know, him have he's had a significant loss amongst Republicans as well. Mustafa, I want to ask you about a couple of the swing states and the ones that everybody's watching, Ohio and North Carolina. And these are particular areas that will accept ballots as late as the 13th and 12th of November. Uh, we've seen the president also cast uh, some criticism towards these mail-in votes and question the integrity of them, uh, particularly past Election Day. What do you think the chances are of a contested election and that there might be some acrimony around these particular votes? Well, President Trump, for the first time, has voted in person. In the past, uh, he he voted uh, by absentee ballot, mail ballot. So uh, he has changed his tune. Uh, look, I, I think that if the election is close, uh, President Trump will uh, contest it. Uh, he has spent significant resources in his campaign uh, for lawyers across the United States. They've also filed some lawsuits already. Uh, but if uh, Texas, a state like Texas, moves in the favor of Democrats. If Florida moves early in the evening, uh, then you're likely to see that there's not going to be a contest. And there, there is a substantial chance of that happening because of record turnout, both in Texas and Florida. And when it comes to Ohio, Ohio is a state that 
you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a bellwether for presidential politics. 93% uh, of the time, whoever wins Ohio wins the presidency. President Trump won Ohio, Ohio by eight points in 2016. He is back there campaigning now because Joe Biden's leading him. Uh, so, you know, I think many pundits are afraid to say that Joe Biden is likely to win because of being wrong in 2016. But all evidence, all metrics, you know, point to that fact. Mustafa, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, and giving us the benefit of your insights. Mustafa Tamiz coming to us, uh, Democratic strategist and former consultant for the uh, Department of Homeland Security. OK, let's tell you a little bit more about our coverage uh, for uh, in terms of the coverage uh, for the presidential election, including a, a rundown of when ballots will start to be counted in key swing states. Go to our website. That's CNBC.com. Karen. Coming up on the show, Jeff, we'll hear from Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary as the airline reports its first summer loss in decades. We'll be right back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's focus on these Ryanair numbers. Then Ryanair has posted a summer season loss for the first time since 2009, its second such loss in 30 years. The Irish budget airline said coronavirus restrictions cut passenger numbers by 80% in the six months to the end of September. The company reported a loss of 197 million euros and warned that further capacity cuts may be needed for the upcoming winter season. We're really pleased to have Michael O'Leary join us to talk about the numbers. Michael, good morning to you. Um, can I good ask morning, you yeah. then, I, I see that you've given you've given no guidance for full year 2021, I guess for obvious reasons here, but just how much visibility do you have on current conditions? Uh, morning, Jeff. Uh, we have very little visibility. You know, uh, at this point in time, we're working off a winter schedule where we hope to carry about 38 million passengers for the full year. Uh, but as we said this morning, if there are more mismanaged lockdowns across Europe and the UK introduced one this weekend, that number may have to be adjusted downwards. I mean, the adjustments will be small, uh, though we think there will be a core amount of essential travel that will take place this winter. But fundamentally, we're talking about a number that is less than one third of our normal annual traffic um, and, and will remain that way until we have a credible or effective vaccine. And that means an end to these uh, failed lockdowns. Just give us your thoughts on the, the lockdown that's been initiated by the prime minister. Do you think it was the right thing to do? 
Well, the WHO themselves confirmed that lockdowns should be the last option. Lockdowns are essentially a failure. I mean, the reason you lock down is so that you put in place the preventative measures or to protect your health service and to prevent the spread of the disease. Very few European governments have done that this summer. We've already had the first lockdown in the spring. They essentially wasted the summer. And we as industry have been calling for uh, much more aggressive test and tracing. And if we had a more aggressive test and tracing uh, provision, or as Boris Johnson promised, a world-class testing and tracing, which you clearly don't have in the UK, we could and would have avoided a second lockdown. But we are where we are, um, and we have to deal with that. It is clear that air travel is in the front line of this uh, pandemic. Uh, people are unwilling to travel where there is huge uncertainty over things like quarantines or lockdowns. And we think the only way out of this is for governments, the British, the Irish and other European governments to introduce pre-departure testing so that people can verify for themselves that they're COVID-free within 72 hours of departure. And then there's no requirement for these uh, lockdown restrictions. Michael, I was debating the other day with the uh, boss of, uh, good morning, <laughs> boss of Airbus, uh, Guillaume Valerie. We were talking about pent-up demand in the industry and whether it really exists because of the changes we've seen structurally with business travel versus leisure travel, where you might actually see some of that pent-up demand. I noticed that you've launched uh, flights from Manchester to Bucharest for summer of 2021. It suggests you do think there will be some pent-up demand when people can actually travel again. I think there's enormous pent-up demand, Karen. We had an example of that two weeks ago on the, the on a, a Thursday when the UK added the Canaries to their green list. Uh, a daily, uh, a target of book a daily target of bookies of 2,000. We exceeded that. We took 28,000 in the first day, 26,000 in the second day, just between the UK and the Canaries. So I think there's enormous pent-up demand there. It's a demand that can't be fulfilled by the industry because so much capacity has been removed between airline failures and fleet being grounded and what we saw that, that one weekend was we as a, as a scheduled airline that have kept flying we were able to respond very quickly we were able to add extras whereas lots of tour operators and charter airlines weren't able to respond to that demand so I mean look I remain largely optimistic I think they, there's a general consensus that a vaccine will be announced this side of Christmas the question is how quickly will that be rolled out to the risk groups the over 70s and the hospital staff we would hope to see that by the end of Q1, Q2 of uh, 2021. And in those circumstances, then I think you'll see a reasonably strong summer 21. Uh, and we'll be in good shape to deal with that because we'll be beginning to take deliveries of our new aircraft in the first three months of next year. Michael, talking of some of those new aircrafts, there's been a lot of problems with the Boeing, clearly around the, the 737 MAX, and some of the commentary <laughs> today suggests it'll be flying by late November, early December. That's the big hope. Is it really the right decision to bring this aircraft into the skies when passengers are already nervous around coronavirus? Isn't this just another layer on top if you bring uh, security into the mix around uh, travelling in the air when you've had so many problems with this, this uh, aircraft? I don't think so. I think by the time, you know, it looks like the aircraft will go back flying, will return to service in North America late November, early December, as you say. Both the FAA and EASA have uh, confirmed they're happy with the aircraft. This is the most audited, safest aircraft flying the world today. Uh, and it's right, we need more aircraft capacity. There will be, I think, a very strong snapback to travel demand, particularly in short-haul European. Long-haul, I think, will take longer, but short-haul European demand will snap back strongly. And we need these additional aircraft uh, because we're going to deliver the growth that many of our competitors won't be able to deliver because they've either postponed deliveries, they've gone bust, or they have 
In the case of the legacy airlines, grounded huge proportions of their fleet, and that fleet will not come back. Michael, very good morning to you. There's a paragraph in your uh, statement today about Brexit as well. I can't believe that we're only, you know, just a couple of months away from the end of this period where we could have no deal across Europe. You have AOCs across the EU, so you're going to be less affected. But how devastating could a, a no deal Brexit be? I mean, Stephen, no deal Brexit with no trade deal on aviation would be devastating. But, you know, the example prior to December of 2019 was the EU and the UK. One of the first industries where they did sign off on a bilateral trade agreement was air travel and aviation. You know, uh, there's no point in rehashing the old codes of Brexit. It has been a shambles. Almost every promise made by Johnson Gove in the Brexit years has been broken. Britain would get a great trade deal, it would be the easiest trade deal. It's all broken. It's been a complete tissue of lies. Um, but I think they will be keen, and I think they, both Europe and the UK will be keen, one, to keep goods moving reasonably freely uh, through the car park of Kent and Calais, and also to keep air travel moving reasonably freely. You know, one of the things even the Brexiteers uh, wanted was continuing low fare air access to the beaches of Spain, Portugal, Italy, etc. They don't all want to be going on holidays in Wales, Scotland and Ireland. Uh, and so I would be confident that even in a hard Brexit scenario, there will be a bilateral trade agreement on uh, air travel and uh, air, air travel and low fare air travel for that will cover the first uh, year or two. But after that, who knows? Mike, just a final one, just to circle back and put these two together. It's amazing that illegal sure. state subsidies seem such a key sticking point between Westminster uh, and Brussels as well. And yet you make the point that throughout this crisis, the airlines, the state-owned airlines across Europe have had a, a raft of illegal state aid. You talk about Air France, KLM, Alitalia, Lufthansa, SAS, etc., etc. as well. Is it possible that you can have some legal redress against that illegal state aid? It is. We've had the first two cases at the European uh, courts, uh, Steve, in November. The, the first uh, the first two decisions were the Finnair or the uh, the SAS decision on state aid to SAS and the more egregious French decision, which was to refund French airport taxes, but only to French airlines and not to other EU airlines. Uh, we hope to get positive decisions, positive rulings on those sometime before Christmas. Um, there does say by me, and I think they will get expedited. How the, how the decisions come out, we honestly don't know. I, mean, I think it's inevitable that there will continue to be state aid for the legacy airlines. I mean, because otherwise they'll all go bust. I mean, in Lufthansa, Air France are getting over 10 billion each. I mean, I think the point we've made and the rest of the industry should be making is that if there's going to be state aid for the airlines, it should come in a form that's accessible to everybody. So it shouldn't just be a 10 billion check to Lufthansa. The German government should reduce aviation taxes. The French government should reduce aviation taxes to all airlines. We're going to need these lower costs if we're going to get European air travel back moving again. You know, I think that spring back will be strong and robust, uh, but it will certainly be a, it will certainly be damaged if you simply have Lufthansa and Air France are able to engage in below cost selling because they get 10 billion each from their governments. So we're not against state aid per se, but it should be non-discriminatory. And what's going on at the moment is massively discriminatory. And you're right, it's richly ironic that one of the sticking points in the EU in the Brexit talks has been state aid at a time when European governments are lashing out and lavishing state aid uh, on the uh, the drunken grandfathers of Lufthansa and Air France, you know, whose first instinct in every crisis is to put the begging bowl out to government for more state aid. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.